0: Before we get to Al Ferrer, we wanted to reaffirm that UCSB Baseball and UC Santa Barbara stand with our black community together in solidarity against hate and injustice. We encourage you to check out the UCSB Library page online or on Instagram or via the Black Studies page, which has provided a list of resources, including books, eBooks, videos, and articles that can help provide a better understanding of the black experience in the United States and systemic racism. Together, we can listen, We can learn, we can vote, and we can be a voice of change. This episode of the Gaucho Night podcast is brought to you by Kyle's Kitchen. All three locations in Goleta and Santa Barbara are open for lunch and dinner. Check out their GoFundMe campaign to help feed families in need at kyleskitchen.com slash giving back. Every dollar raised will be matched by Kyle's family for up to $10,000. During these uncertain times, Kyle and the Gauchos are doing their part to give back to the community. And I tell you what, I love the Farmhouse Salad, and I love seeing Kyle whenever I go in there. They're now open for dine-in, so check out Kyle's Kitchen. Go say hi to Kyle. This episode also brought to you by the Gauchos' social media feeds, Instagram and Twitter. Check them out, UCSB underscore baseball. Also check out the analytics page on Twitter. That's at SBBaseballData. And some news about the draft. It's going to be today and tomorrow, and the Gauchos have had a lot of success in the past. Hopefully we hear a Gaucho name called in this shortened five-round draft. But since 2012, UCSB has produced 50 draft picks, which is the 14th most in the country. So that's including Vanderbilt, Arkansas, Florida, teams in the SEC, the Big 12, the Pac-12. Gauchos are right up there, and that 50 number is the most amongst non-Power 5 program so hopefully we get some good news with the draft but uh please tune into that and wish the gauchos luck also follow the podcast on instagram ucsb gaucho 9 podcast thank you so much for listening we're going to keep turning out some material this is going to be a good week for uh for gaucho listeners so let's get to al here we go
1: it's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America. The Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night.
0: Here's the one-strike pitch and Mitchell belts it to deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning. And Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? To pitch, curveball is swung on him. In. Yeah. And the score is due. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019 champions of the Big Boss. Oh, well, this man, uh, his reputation precedes itself. He is an inspiration to me, an inspiration to many Gauchos out there. Head coach at UCSB in 1981. From 1981 to 1993, 445 career wins. He posted four 40-win seasons, made four regional appearances, 83, 86, 87, and 90. Two conference championships, a two-time conference coach of the year. He also coached three conference players of the year. And when I say your reputation precedes itself, I I mean it. Coach Ferrer... Al Ferrer, welcome to the Gouch and I podcast. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, This is going to be fun.
1: Kevin, thank you. It's an honor.
0: Well, I I got this idea when we were mulling around ideas and we started listing all the conference championships. And when I called you, because I called you when we were on the bus back in February on our way to Sacramento State to ask about your memories of 1986, because that was the last time the Gauchos had won conference championship up until last year 2019 and you broke off into the story about how you got accepted into the head coaching position at UCSB and and we had a good laugh about that but I want to know what got your start as a coach because you played you were a player and I think you're you're probably you you said that you are in the record books at Chico State but You're probably more well-known as a coach, but you also played as well, and you're pretty good. Well,
1: I would say I was an above average to good high school player, and I was an average college player, and I just had a love of the game, and uh, I was fortunate to be around uh, a really, really good coach, and that was John Nochi at the College of San Mateo, and one day we were on a bus returning on a trip and he had a bunch of cards in front of him. And I said, coach, what's the deal with the cards? And he goes, well, I'm working on tomorrow's practice plan. And I said, is it okay if I look at it? And I looked at the practice plan and I fell in love. I saw the organization involved there and how it was pieced together and all these practices that I'd been, I never really st- stopped to think of all the time that was put into that organization. And that got me fired up. And I knew from then on I wanted to coach.
0: Well, And prior to College of San Mateo, you played at a pretty good high school. And yes. Earlier, when we were talking before we came on the air, you said the the Sarah High School. Because there's, there's a lot of J. Sarah High Schools out there. But this is one. Well, because not only is Al Ferrer an alum, but talking about Bonds and Brady. You mentioned Lynn Swan. I forgot about that.
1: Well, and you can go on and on. Jim Fregosi, who is a major league manager and an all-star with the Angels. Uh, Joe Kamak, who played for me, caught two years in the big leagues. The number of major leaguers they have turned out is tremendous and professional football players. So it was an athletic at uh, Greg Jeffries. I just read a huge article on Greg Jeffries uh, uh, two days ago in the New York Post. And it was all about his career. And he was the greatest player they were writing about him as the greatest minor league player ever when he got to the major leagues at 19. And he ended up having a nice career, but it wasn't the, he was an all-star in the majors and stuff, but it wasn't what they thought. So Sarah never blinked when they had professional athletes. The, the Sarah high school is a rag to the other Sarah high schools, but it's also mocking Ohio state. When I'd watch football games and guys would come on and go, I went to the Ohio state. And I thought, Screw you! I went to the Chico State, and I went to the, you know, so it was just messing around.
0: Well, that's all good and fun. I I took a visit to College of San Mateo, and there was a longtime coach there when I took my visit. And I should have looked up his name before we started this, but I for for the life of me, I f- I forget his name. But he's well. I'll help long
1: you long with it. Time. His name is Doug Williams.
0: There it is. Thank you. And
1: Doug was a shortstop for me. He came oh, wow. from the College of San Mateo and. I really had a tough decision that year. I had Eric Johnson, who was an honorable mention All-American shortstop and played for me for four years and made the majors. And Doug Williams came in in Eric's senior year and was just a smooth shortstop. We took him away from LSU, of all things. But he could only at that time, in my mind, play shortstop. So I went to Eric, and I go, Eric, what do I do? And Eric says, Coach, I'll move. And that was a class act. Yeah, Eric... I don't think I would have forced Eric to move, even though – but it got another really good player into the lineup.
0: Well, I remember that visit, and Coach Williams, I mean, he, he was dialed in on everything, and they got a great program at CSM, and then you went up and played at a, another great program, which is in Division Two, playing in California, Chico State. What records do you hold up there? You said you might still be in the record book.
1: You know, it's amazing, and I don't tell people that I threw against wood bats, so that would have been like 1922. <laughs> and the ERA was 1.23, and I think that will stand as long as they have to get people out with aluminum bats. If they equalize it and go to wood bats, I'm sure that would go away. And well, then how many was, how
0: many innings is that in, though? You know, did, did you qualify for 70-ish,
1: innings? 70-ish. Okay. And that was a lot then. They didn't play uh, – the number of games you play now.
0: Yeah, how many how many games? So when you're at at Chico State, how many games are you playing in a regular season?
1: Probably forty five.
0: Yeah. So now, college, that's what
1: 56. college teams played then.
0: Right. And now and you're then, playing a fifty six game regular season if you make it. And then postseason, yeah. Postseason, you play it maybe you know if you go deep, you're playing upwards of seventy games. So right. One point two three. That's that's impressive, Val. I didn't well, know that. I'm going to learn a few things on this in this conversation, I think. Good. That I didn't know before.
1: <laughs> I'm sure I will, too.
0: Because I, I went and did some homework on you. And, you know, we've, we've interacted in the past. And as I said, I talked to you on the bus on the way to Sacramento State this year. And after Chico State, you go in and start coaching in high school. But so where did you coach before you got to UC Santa Barbara? Because you got the job in 19- one. Sure. I can be ow, very ow. quick with it. Yeah.
1: I was in the outfield one day at Chico State near the end of my, uh, playing time. And I, I was an accounting major and I basically hated it. And I just thought, what am I going to do? And I just thought, God, I love being out here, the fresh cut grass, uh, you're dressed casually, uh, you get to create your time, And of everything in the world, the thing I know the most about is baseball, which wasn't that much then, but I didn't know anything else. And uh, I got a chance to coach at a school called Pleasant Valley High School in Chico as a a graduate student. And the head coach there was named Clay Dalrymple. Uh, His brother played, or Bush Dalrymple, his brother Clay played 11 years or 12 years for the Phillies and got a a base hit against Juan Marichal and Juan Marichal's first game to ruin a one hitter. So I got involved with those guys. And then I started coaching at Corning high school, a small school, and then Willows high school, another small school, eight years. It was the wrong way to do it, but I didn't know. And then I got a graduate assistant at Arizona state and that opened up everything. I went there and I coached under Jim Brock, who's in the hall of fame. Jim became my mentor. Uh, fortunately, he was very sarcastic and facetious, and we fit like a glove. And uh, we had a lot of talent. We had Bob Horner, whose first game in the major leagues was the day after the College World Series. He went straight to the big leagues and hit a home run. Uh, Hubie Brooks, had it not been a strike short in year, he would have led the National League in hitting. He hit 340-something. So we had a lot of talent, and it was really an eye-opener. I went from a small high school to the number one college team in the nation. And at that time, it was us in USC. And then I, I, after the year at Arizona State as a graduate assistant, I got the head job at Azusa Pacific, which is a very good NAIA school. And, and we still is. The, yeah, and we won the conference twice. And then all of us, but I hated, I have to say this, I hated the urban environment. And I did not want to raise my family in an urban environment. And the job, I went to schedule UC Santa Barbara, who I, I had coached against the year before. And they said, well, the coach was let go. And I said, wait a minute, the position's open? And they said, yeah. So I applied. And there were 36 applicants. And uh, I got an interview. And the the athletic director, Ken DeRosher, called me at home and said, "Uh, if we offer you the job, will you take it? And I said, well, I'll talk to my wife. I'll take two or three minutes. And I'll say yes. (laughs) And so he offered me the job.
0: and then. Was was this, but was this sight unseen? Like, did you go up and visit the campus? Yeah. Okay.
1: I, I interviewed, well, first of all, the campus. Here I am in an urban environment, hating life. And I come up to the point and I'm going, oh my goodness, I get to raise my family here. And uh, there was an old, old song that's even older than me that it said, you know, I I loved you from hello. You know, the first minute it was like, I can't believe this could be my campus. So we, we were fortunate to get the offer. And I drove up with my best friend in coaching then was a guy named Skip Claproot, And at that time he was the winningest coach in junior college baseball at Citrus college. And we came up with him and his wife, my wife and I, and this is a story you and I talked about. We walked to the field and I got to tell you,
0: and this is in, this is this must have been what summer of nineteen eighty?
1: Late eighty, yeah. Okay. So we walk out on the field, and I would say the field was an F high school field. And in terms the stands were one wooden bleacher that you could fit about 14 people on. There were no dugouts. We walk out to the pitching mound and he cracked me up. He stood on the rubber and he goes, Al, I don't know how to tell you this but I don't think the rubber lines up with home plate. And I looked at it, and he goes, are you sure you can win here? Do you want to come here? And I said, this is where I want to be. And that's where we started from.
0: You know, some no. of the themes that I've had on these prior podcasts and in some of the other things that I've discussed recently, it's been grassroots. It's been start with, start with the love of the game, start with hard work, start with doing the stuff you know, the sweat equity, doing the stuff on your own. And I mean, that story, when I heard it, I was like, wow. Well, I
1: can't, I can't make this point enough. And it, it may sound like I'm trying to get a good dinner tonight. But the wife you pick is unbelievably important. She was absolutely supportive of every move. And where the wrong wife might look at you and go, are you crazy? The other one would be, let's go, we can do this. It's an adventure.
0: So and uh, she really kept the your crazy part to herself,
1: yeah. No kidding, and told you at a later, later date. <laughs> well, she did say there were times I wondered, What are you doing? But and then when they told me we had 2.8 scholarships
0: oh, and right. the
1: NC2A limit then was 13, I thought mm, that's gonna present some challenges. And I'll throw some names at you we lost later as a result of not having the normal allotment of. I can throw it here. We had the number five team in the nation and I had three players commit verbally. And each one of those players called me and said, coach, I've been offered a full ride by such and such a school. I still want to come to Santa Barbara. If you can match it, I'm coming. And I said, hey, at that point we were up to six scholarships. And I said, I can't do it. I don't have it. Well, the first one went to Loyola Marymount. His name was Billy Bean and he made the major leagues he's now an executive in major league baseball his first game in the majors he got 5 hits which no one's ever done the second guy was a first baseman and he went to San Diego State and his name was uh, Mark Grace and Mark Grace was an all-star probably a dozen times and he was coming and San Diego and the third guy would have been a decent player he said coach Oklahoma State just called me and I'm coming to your place but my mom said I have to have a full and that was Robin Ventura. Wow. And I, I think the team they didn't come to hit 348. So that would have been an interesting thing. I've woken up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat, thinking about that possibility.
0: Again, something that I didn't know that I'm learning on this pod. That's unbelievable. I, had, You talk about three legendary college players, Well, especially yeah. Ventura. Ventura's achievements at the college level unprecedented in most points.
1: Well I think he hit in close to eighty straight, I think. I remember when he passed, he passed he DiMaggio. Had the hit record.
0: He had the uh the consecutive game hit record. I think it yeah. was broken recently. No by a guy from Florida International. But so you, you your first year is nineteen eighty one and it didn't take you all that long to have some success because nineteen eighty three and when we we were prepping for this I asked you, so do you want me to send you the stats from 1986? And you're like, well, you need to – if you're going to send me 86, you better send me 83, 84, 85, and 87 too, because those were good teams. And 1983 was no exception. SCBA conference champs, it was the third time in the school history where they'd won a conference championship, and it was the first time that UCSB had won 40 games in a year, and there's some pretty good on that roster.
1: Well, there was a game – You know, it's funny when you name schools. Right now, the Big West is really down. Uh, There's been eras where the Big West was the SEC. Those those conferences were equal, and and you throw in the Pac-10. So there's been up and down years. But there were teams like UC Irvine. Now, a few years ago, they were nationally ranked. A number of years ago, they were a disaster. And before that, they were nationally ranked. Well, we were playing them one year. And we opened the season, it was 83, and we lose the first two conference games. And we're so frustrated. And a guy made a diving catch in the outfield to save at beginning. And then a guy named Dan Clark came up. And this is the hit heard around the world for us. There were two hits heard around the world in my era. The Grand Slam, of course, for your era was another one heard around the world. But a guy came up late in the game and hits a home run to right center with two outs, and we're losing, and he wins the game. And at that moment, I saw a light switch happen here. All of a sudden, the players looked at each other like, "We can win." And it took two years plus. and I, I make an analogous and this is really reaching, but I grew up in the Bay Area, and we always lost to USC, UCLA, the Rams, the Dodgers. We just got beat up by those people for decades until the moment Dwight Clark caught the pass. And from that time, I saw the Bay Area become winners in a lot of different ways. Well, that hit, I saw the UCSP program become a winner. And it was unbelievably exciting. And it got us to a playoff game against Fullerton. And the second hit around the world was a guy named Kent McBride, who could probably get you out of a lot of trouble. He's a sheriff's deputy in Santa Barbara County. And we use five pinch hitters in an inning. We're losing the playoff game to Fullerton at uh, Long
0: Beach. So this is at – I'm looking at the schedule. This is at the end of the year. Yeah. So you already completed the regular season schedule. Right. And
1: there's a one-game playoff. And if we lose, we're not going to the regionals and we had never gone before. And if they lose, they'll go because they're Cal State Fullerton. And so we were down the hammerheads, which you've heard of, became nationwide famous on this road trip. Uh, They drove down and they stopped at a farm and stole the chicken. Have you heard that story? Uh, they were incredible. So we're losing something like five to two in about the seventh inning. I don't know the score, but it was something like that, I think. And all of a sudden, I'm using pinch hitters. And I use I, this has to be a world's record. I use five pinch hitters in an inning, and all five came through. And the last one's name was Kent McBride, the sheriff's deputy I'm talking about. And he hits a double to the gap, and we win it. Well, during that, the Hammerheads, well, we're behind, start going, who's the losing team? And they pointed to Fullerton. And who's the winning team? Now, we're behind. We're going to get beat. And then there's a, a ball hit down the line. And the umpire makes a call. And they all of a sudden, a dead chicken comes over the fence on the end of a fishing pole. <laughs> and they yell, that call was foul. Not <laughs> F-O-U-L, but F-O-W-L. The Hammerheads were unbelievable. And my team is getting so into them. Well, when we ended up walking off, Augie and Fullerton, Dave Snow, legendary coaches came over and congratulated us, and we got the bid. Obviously, we won the league, so we got to go. That was pretty exciting. And then two things. The best stretch I've ever heard of was Arizona State, before I was there as a graduate assistant, went 64-6. and Now, i I've never heard of a stretch better than that.
0: So that, that could be over a handful, over like two years, you know at yes, but that
1: years, was one up. year, coincidentally, but it could be over two, you know, just a stretch. right. So I always kind of followed that. Well, that year in '83, I think we ended 25 and three. The next no, 23 and five, I think it was. As a matter of fact, I've got it in front of
0: me. So, after you lost that Irvine game, so you dropped the first two to Irvine, we
1: went twenty seven and five
0: yes, the, the next
1: year we start nineteen and one, so that stretch was forty six and six, and I offered wondered how many teams had a, a stretch better than forty six and six and worse than sixty four and six uh, It had to be one of the top five or ten stretches in the history of college baseball and It was amazing, and it was a lot of fun. And luckily, I never said this to anybody at the time, but we would sweep Stanford, and I'd be on the bus coming home, and I'd go, God, it can't be this easy. Have we figured it out? (laughs) Well, shortly after, I found out it wasn't that easy, and I would have eaten those words big time if I would have ever said them publicly. Um, So the game can be cruel, and uh, it's tough.
0: Yes, it can. Well, yeah, because in – in eighty-three, you win the playoff game to go to a regional. And then eighty-four, you set the UCSB school record 46 wins, but you don't go to a regional.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you what that takes. And a little bit of what they're writing on was a foundation that came from all those years of winning. Our name was UC Santa Barbara. If our name would have been University of Nevada. That's the name of a state. Right. We weren't the name of a state. We were one of those attachment schools. A direct. We went to play Yeah, we went to play Texas, three games at Texas. Now we had just swept Stanford three straight, I think. I don't know what year this was. We go to Texas and we get there, and the headlines are You See Who in the Texas Papers. So obviously that was going up on the bulletin board. And I made the team meet me downstairs, and we went on a bus. They had no choice. We're going someplace. They don't know where. We go to a movie theater, and we watch uh, Hoosiers. Mm. And they are fired up. When he hits the shot at the end of the game, well, we walk out to the field the next day to play Texas. And my pitchers, funny guys, they got a tape measure someplace. Hopefully, they didn't steal it. They walk out and they measure home plate to the rubber and they go, yep, 60 feet, six inches, just like our field, meaning in that movie, when they went to the state championship, they measured the basket and it was 10 feet, just like at their school. And we ended up taking two out of three from Texas at Texas. We lost one to nothing in 10 innings. Nobody had won a series from them at home in six, seven years. And that's when I knew we were legit.
0: So that, that yeah. was in that was in 1987. Okay. And, and yeah, I mean that's that's I mean, Texas has a lot of, has had a lot of heydays. Oh yeah. They were, they were, they were no slouchs in the 80s. Yeah, nope. speak to that,
1: and they're, you know, Roger Clemens, the names they were turning out, not in 87, but over those years were legends. And uh and that was a lot of fun. The 80 the 86 team, and here's something that I try to teach young guys like you, and even, even when on the occasions Andrew asked me to talk to the team a little bit, you're in the middle of your career right now, and you can't see it. We couldn't see it when we were in the middle. My players are now 50 years old, which is hard for me to say. I've had five of them pass away. I had just a stud pass away this year named Mike Tresmer, who is the key to a couple of those teams. He was a man. And they rally. We had, the first time I used Zoom, I had, was about (laughs) three weeks ago, I had 16 players on there at five o'clock in the evening, which is apparently when they like to go into Isla Vista in the old days. We were on there at five in the evening and we just reminisced for an hour, talked about tree. And I just looked at these guys and I thought, this means this is such a significant time in their life that they never forget it. No matter what successes or failures or pain or happiness they have in the future, they never forget the teammates and the winning and, and the fun things and the stuff the head coach didn't know they did. Even that stuff. Um, pretty impressive. And so these teams Andrew has right now, they're never going to forget this. And, uh, just, that's one of the unfortunate reasons it was such a brief season this year.
0: I, I, I agree. And I'm starting to realize that. I mean, I just turned 30 and I don't have a life experience like you do or like Andrew does, but I'm starting to, to take note of some of the things that have happened. I mean, I've been here for nine years and we've gone to four regionals. We've been to the college world series and yep. you know, the college world series was five years ago. It seems like it was yesterday. But at the same time it seems like it was twenty years ago. Yeah. But I remember like almost every single day of that trip. And I'm just listening to you recount some of these games and some of these memories and how accurate they are is impressive. And it speaks to how how this game works on our minds. I mean, it's so it just lives with us. But in eighty-six, it was the last time that the the school won a big west championship, forty-five and nineteen, eighteen and three. And we talked about this on last week's pod with Skip Schumacher and Bob Bronsma. There was a long trip to Hawaii in two thousand one, where they went seven and one, played eight games in seven days. There's also a long trip to Hawaii in nineteen eighty six we played 5 games in 5 days against a good Hawaii team and i don't know why but i have some i have a fascination with Hawaii like that stadium is so cool going to the islands is a unique experience and there's a, there's some history of ball there i'm not trying to plug Hawaii or anything but those series they mean a little more because you have to travel and yeah playing in front of a big crowd but what were those games like in 1986
1: there's an interesting thing. If, did you look, did you get a chance to look at the statistics of the 86 team? Yes. You saw what they hit? Yes. They hit 348 and they led the nation basically. Um, they hit 73 home runs. You know, if a team hits 25 home runs, that's quite a season now. And, and they stole well over hundred bases. Something I noticed when I was doing the research, the 10 top, Base stealing school teams in the ninety-two years, year history of UCSB were all our teams during that era. They're the top ten base stealing teams, all the way up to two hundred and thirty steals in a season to lead the nation.
0: Well, you well, had a, you had a special base stealer.
1: Oh yeah, Gerald Roundtree, and Gerald Roundtree finished his career as the number three all-time base stealer, and. He made a catch at Pepperdine, going up a fence. That he sprained an ankle, and it wasn't bad enough to keep him out of the lineup. But I couldn't run with him, so we didn't run with him for about ten games. He wow. would have ended up the all-time base stealer. He stole over fifty three times and finished as an all-American. Uh, he was a lot of fun. But we went to Hawaii, and we must have hit. Have you? You've been in the ballpark, right? I have. Astroturf, very fast field, uh, heavy air because of the ocean. We must have hit ten balls in the air that we jumped up in the dugout, and the outfielders came in and caught them.
0: It's it's then, still it's still like that even with new Yeah, bats. I
1: heard it's a little. I heard they changed it a little bit, but you're right. And the other thing is, we would smoke balls on the on the infield. And they had these small little infielders. And they would just six to four to three, four to six to three, five to four to three. They turned double plays like it was going out of style. And uh, that was very frustrating. We played our game, and it, we just didn't fit. And then uh, we had a real heartbreaker against them in the regional. Uh, we're about to go to the World Series. And there's a ground ball to short. And the runner was in front of Erickson, who was a really good fielder. And he couldn't ball, but the ball got to him and almost hit him in the head. And they beat us on that play. And uh, we had a play like that at Stanford, too. That that team was going to the World Series. And that last game blew up, but we were winning it. It was a play down the line that was called fair. And uh, the stands erupted that it was foul. My players, I didn't have a good angle. My players went crazy. And that game blew up. So those were our two real close moves to the World Series. That's why it was so exciting when Andrew's team, your team, got there. It was like, finally.
0: Yeah, and Skip and Bob said the same thing about that one team, that it was a special group, a special group that deserved to be there just like anybody else. And looking over the roster of 86, it's the same, it's the same story. And – it's so close because you, you win, you win the first game of the regional against LMU, and then the tough loss against Hawaii, and then you get eliminated by LMU, who wind up going to the College World Series that year. Right. No,
1: it was it was pretty heartbreaking. But to name some names on that team, and by the way, there's some I wasn't very political, and a lot of guys that should be in the Hall of Fame aren't. And I'm trying to make a late push with the athletic department to get these guys in. And when you look at their numbers, there's going to be a day, somebody's going to look and go, how in the heck are these guys not in the Hall of Fame? Uh, Quinn Mack, who made the major leagues, his brother Shane Mack was an all-star in the major leagues. Quinn replaced Ken Griffey Jr. at Seattle when he got hurt. Quinn hit 393 that year with nine home runs he hit 467 in conference. And Jim Brock, my mentor from Arizona State came and said that's the best college hitter I've seen. And I thought that was quite a compliment. Mark Leonard, who played 5 years in the major leagues, and you talk about bad luck, he makes the major leagues with the Giants and he destroyed Triple A. And the people he had to beat out, there was a first he played first base left field. At first base he had to beat out a guy named Will Clark. So that was kind of tough. His first year with the Giants, he had to beat out an, a left fielder named Kevin Mitchell, who ended up being most valuable player that year. But Kevin left, so it got easier because the next left fielder was Barry Bonds. So those are the guys he played behind for five years. Uh, I got to see his first home run. And I saw him his first game at Dodger Stadium. So you know, the guys that made the majors on that team were Quinn Mack, Mark Leonard, Eric Johnson. Uh, and I think Bruce Egluff was a pitcher on that team who made the big leagues. Um, that's pretty good. Little That's major league. We had 12, I think, sign off that team and play pro ball. So,
0: yeah. And, pretty, and not to mention, not to mention Scott Cerny hit 403 on first the team All-American. first team All American. First team All American. And Vince Teixeira, 15 homers, 70 RBIs. I mean, and hit
1: 373 and will yeah. be the defensive coordinator in the movie that i'm making and he has a speaking line and uh Vince is on the tv show i think it's called the secretary and he's done n- numbers of commercials so it's been fun to keep following him wait and then
0: wait hang hang on hang on hold on a sec you're making a movie oh yeah you're making a movie
1: we're in year 7 <laughs> and we're very close now we're we're wow. just finishing the third rewrite of the script And it involves a guy named John Barnes. And I'm just going to leave you with this because I don't want to take, I could talk two hours on the movie. John Barnes went to 10 schools. He had three learning disabilities. From the age of 7 to 22, he was bullied and picked on. His lifetime goal was to be a starting quarterback at the college level. He couldn't understand the playbook. One of the five schools he went to in five years, colleges, was UC Santa Barbara, and he was a quarterback in '91, and led him to a winning season. And they dropped the program, so the next year UCLA's quarterback leaves to go to the NFL draft. So he walks on to be the fifth string quarterback wow. as a fifth fifth year senior. Well, when you get a chance, Google John Barnes. It will, 1992, USC UCLA. That's the climax of the movie. And of course, there'll be actors instead. Of, but that's the real footage we took to two and a half hours. And the director is named Nick Satriano, who started four years for me at UCSB. He's done over a hundred movies, and the movies are like Fast and Furious, the Bourne movies, uh, Sideways. He's done it all. So, wow,
0: that's yeah. that's awesome. I, that's
1: called retirement.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. you, my my basketball partner Jim Ian. I know Jimmy. Jimmy, who, who coached in the NBA for 25 plus years. We would always joke because he, he was telling me he's he's been going through his garage and pulling out all these old memorabilia that he collected. And I would joke with him. It's like, so you're going to write a book, right? And that's kind of, whenever I check in with him, it's, you know, what chapter are you on? Are you on the chapter about me? Yep. So I don't know if it's real or not, but this movie sounds real. And- well, I got a Jimmy I am yeah.
1: story to tell you, but not today, but it's. It shows you the quality of him. I, I hold Absolutely. him in the highest esteem. So I got to talk to Jimmy. I, I'll mentor him as a big movie maker. I can now mentor him as an author. So
0: Yes. Maybe even write the prologue. There you go. <laughs> okay, well, so you, you had this left-handed pitcher who's got a funky last name, and he's the all-time career wins leader at UCSB, Dan Yokobitis. Yep. What can you tell me about Dan?
1: I inherited Dan. And he hadn't thrown too much when we got, when we got him. A-plus human being, first of all. And the team loved him. And nobody worked harder than him. And he had a sinker. That I kind of didn't understand how good it was. Because I'm in the dugout or I'm in the, you know, I'm someplace, but I'm not on the field. And one day we were short in the bullpen. And I was still young, so I grabbed a glove and I went down to warm him up. And that thing was sinking unbelievably. I could hardly catch it. And I said, Dan, I want you to throw one pitch straight. And he goes, coach, I am throwing it straight. And I go, well, you ought to be on this end of it because it ain't straight. It was so good that Augie Garrido stopped the game. And I don't remember what the score was, but it was kind of a two to one game and he stopped it three times to check the ball. He thought he was loading it up or something. And Dan just threw it that way. And, Dan got to double A with the Giants and was really successful. But they wanted to send him in the winter to Venezuela. And he had just gotten married. And he said, can I take my wife? And they said, no. And Dan has a lot of skills. He can fix a car with a toothbrush. I mean, he's got great skills. And he just walked away from the game. And I have no doubt he would have, he would have gotten there. That season he had was mind-boggling.
0: And he's, and he's enshrined at Caesar Osaka stadium, along with a couple of the other guys that you mentioned from 86 team and and these teams from the eighties. And another guy who played for you, who was on last week's pod was former head coach. And I believe he was your successor, Bob Bronsma. He was, and he was, he
1: was a junior college transfer. And his one real tool was he could run. And that fit because I like to run.
0: You sure did.
1: And, you know, we had guys who stole 50. Even the team that we took over in 81, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think we had two or three guys steal 30 on that team. And when you look at the game now, 30 might lead the nation almost. I mean, nobody runs anymore. And that brings me to another point one of my sons sent me an article today about the science of baseball and how it's constantly changing. And I was always a numbers geek. And they have now decided the new science going into this year's major league season is the defensive skills of the catcher no longer matter. And one of my sons was a catcher and he was really (laughs) ticked. And they actually are calling the catcher's position this coming year, DH two. And they said, they don't care if they can frame. Well, two years ago, a guy my son worked with with the Pittsburgh Pirates developed a stat on framing. And it was like they just invented the Pythagorean theorem or something. They loved it. And now two years later, they say they don't care. Blocking doesn't matter as much. And they don't care if they can throw out runners. Well, if I was coaching now, I would double down on stealing. It's like, hey, if you're going to forfeit the steal, we're going to take it. And let your pitcher stress out that guys are going every pitch and see the effect That's going to have on you and his team. But I think it's going to be interesting to watch this major league season and look at the starting catchers. It's all hitters. And uh, the running game just put a lot of pressure on everybody. And Bob was part of that. Um, I think he stole 40-plus bases. Uh, And Bob should have gotten a chance to play pro ball. But he had a flaw in his throwing motion. And he just couldn't change it. And I found that over the years my master's thesis was on the effect of stretching exercises and outfield throwing motion. And I could take a guy with a bad throwing motion, take him down the line and train him perfectly. And he could repeat it a hundred times. And the first ball he gets in the game, it goes right back to the flawed motion. And it, it's just,
0: if you've Crawley. got a flaw,
1: but by the time yeah. you're 20, you can't change it.
0: And that, that's called muscle memory. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's good and bad. Yeah. Well, so one one more guy I want I want to talk about because he's been he's been very active in in recent alumni weekend events, and he was a 400 hitter. He was an All American. He was an author and GM. And did you see Bill Givett having that kind of future when he was a Gaucho?
1: Uh. That's a great question to see if I could project. I know he was unique, and I mean that in a positive way, but also in a ragging way. <laughs> um, sarcastic, witty, funny, pushed the limits, and yet the minute the first pitch was thrown, he gave you everything he had, and he was really talented and might have been the best, and I had a few, but might have been the best pure hitter we had. He had such a beautiful short stroke, He didn't have the body type, but we hit him first uh, because he was always on base. And we had lots of three, four, five hitters. Um, You talk about the author. He wrote a book on a career in baseball. And I started the sport management program at UCSP, which means we placed more than a thousand students over the years in internships with NBA teams, NFL teams, Major League Baseball teams. So he sent me a copy of the book. And because we have a ragging relationship, I could not wait to read it and then just destroy it to them and just say, it, it stinks. It was awesome. It was, if I was still teaching, that would have been the textbook for my students. It had so much good information about a professional sports career and uh, general manager who to thunk it, you know, he worked, he got his way up there. He would call me out of the blue and say, coach, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, I'm at home with my wife and kids. And he goes, well, I'm at an airport in Australia, and a plane just ran over my suitcase. And, you know, he would tell me about all the places he went for baseball. He paid his dues. And uh, he's been so loyal to the program. And and like I said, guys don't realize how much their years on a team meant until later in life. And he's maintained it. And another guy I thought you were going to mention until you said he hit 400 was Tim McCurcher, who was a switch oh, yes. hitting catcher for us. And he hit a soft 350 almost automatically. And to, he was an indication of how good a team we had. He would hit 350 and bat ninth. And, you know, the average is 348. So you're just slightly, and he didn't have power. So he was he was down in the nine slot. And he has remained... He's kind of the focal point of the program now. Something like the terrible thing that happened to Mike Tresmer. Tim is the first one to rally the troops. And he is constantly r- rallying all the former teams. And he and Guyvet cross over from team to team. You know, they cover 15 years of the game, even though they only played a couple of years. So special people.
0: Okay, so, Alex, so you, you wanted to mention one more thing about 1986.
1: Well, we were very numbers-oriented way before it was accepted. It was kind of like pre-Moneyball. And I knew the value of walking and on-base base percentage and taking pitches, especially to get the opportunity to steal. If you look at the bottom of your 86 stats, look at base on balls offensively, and look at strikeouts offensively.
0: Bear with me do you here. you see those two numbers? Okay, so based on balls. I'll, I'll pull it up. If you... No, I, I got it. Yeah, so 288 walks as a team, and you only struck out 206 yep. times.
1: Nobody strikes out less than – if you have a player, a player that does that, you've got a goal mine. Yes, you do. Think of guys in the major leagues that walk more than they strike out. There's, there's a handful, and you know maybe a Wade Boggs was one, and a, a Tony Gwynn, but they don't exist. Uh, maybe Albert Ted
0: Albert Pujols is kind of a recent one. I had yeah. a I had a trivia question on my phone of because there are only like five of them in the league at that right. point. Maybe a handful of years ago. Well, that's so, yeah. a
1: team right there of about twenty hitters that walked 20 something times more than they struck out in that season. And our philosophy was you're Fullerton and I'm UCSB. We each have 27 glasses of water to get across the Sahara Desert. Whoever uses the 27 glasses the best wins. So if you wanna use a, one of those glasses of water to move up 90 feet on a sacrifice bunt, go ahead. I would rather steal ten times and be successful seven and a half without using any water. Now, granted, I do lose two and a half for zero bases when we do get caught. But if you can run successfully enough, you stretch the game way out. And then with all those walks, they can't catch a line drive on a walk. They can't catch a ball against the fence on a walk. Those are free baseballs bases to extend the game. So you combine the discipline at the plate with the ability to run at a successful rate. And I used to feel there was a hundred pounds of pressure every game against a good team. What we did by using those things is take all a hundred pounds and put it on the opponent. And if they handled it, they beat us, but most of them couldn't handle it. And so they would crumble and that would lead to winning. So that was a big part of our philosophy. And most people never noticed the walks there. And that was pretty typical of a lot of our teams. And yet an entire team did that. That's mind-boggling to me, mathematically.
0: Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, an anomaly, at least nowadays. And well, if
1: you could pull up last year's team, not, the, not so, this year's, but last year's, see how many players walked more than they struck out. You're well, not going to find me.
0: I, I beat you to it, and there's one guy – there's one guy that did, and that guy's name is Eric Yang. Who... Yeah,
1: I love I love watching him. And that's a championship team, and it was one guy.
0: Yeah, well, and it's, so, it was last year because I – I,
1: That might be the most amazing number of all.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to touch on last year just really briefly because they did walk a lot, but they also struck out their fair share of times. But they stole a lot of bases, they had 220 – stolen bag guys in Tommy Jew and Tevin Mitchell at 88 as a team. And the one thing that the 2020 Gauchos and the 2019 Gauchos did really, really aggressive and smart on the base paths. So not necessarily stealing bags, but being first to third, scoring on singles, scoring position, like those sort of things and taking extra bases when the opportunity is, is presented. And that was a big identity of that team last year, and a big identity and a big reason why the Gauchos were thirteen and two in the twenty twenty shortened season. So, they so Andrews it figured here,
1: but, it out, which is great.
0: You you probably told him something, right? You're probably, well, I right?
1: would rag him to death. I said <laughs> I had a team that we gave the sacrifice bunt sign uh, six times in sixty games, and I said we had four sacrifice bunts. And I guarantee you at least two or three of them were drag buns. We just didn't waste a glass of water. And uh, there's a time to do it. Runners at first and second, no out. And maybe the way the game's going, yes. But not first to second, you're giving up a glass of water. And this era of college baseball does not buy into that. And I think the games, and I'm prejudiced as could be being an old guy, they're not as exciting as they used to be. And Andrew's team last year was exciting. I loved it.
0: So wow. I, have you been, I know you, you go to a lot of games. I see you at the yard a lot. I see you at events. I see you around town and I have seen you be a voice to coach check. and I'm sure you were a voice to coach Bronsmo before Andrew as well. But what has been your role in, in tutoring your predecessors?
1: Well, Andrew doesn't need any tutoring. He, he is really, really, really good. And I mean that Um, we enjoy talking and our relationship, I think is really good, really good. Um, And we rag unmercifully. I'll go, you know, before he started running, I said, how many times are you going to bunt today? I can't wait to watch your team sacrifice bunt seven times. You know, we'd be ragging and he, he had so many things to come right back at me with and, he has treated me way better than I deserve to be treated. He's invited me to everything. Uh, when, he first, when he first got here, he asked me to go out to lunch with his assistants and explain my philosophy of offense, and it's like, wow, that's a lot of respect. And, and I think anybody has to understand, uh, if you take two managers in Major League Baseball, their philosophies could be absolute opposites and it doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong it's their philosophy and if you can make it work it will so he's treated me very well i'm a big fan and we would joke sometimes we would grade each other i would say okay uh, defense i'd give my team's a b plus i'd give yours a b plus and then we'd go to pitching and i'd go i'd give your team an a minus i'd give my team's a b and we'd go to hitting well when we got to fundraising I would go, okay, I'd give me an F and I would give you about a B. Plus. And that's something he's really done well that I wanted no part of. And I was wrong because they've got lights, they travel better, they have more scholarships, the facilities have been upgraded. And that's all him. I mean, he really has figured out fundraising. And it would be ugly if he was LSU. I'm very close to the LSU program because my son's in Baton Rouge and his father-in-law is a big booster they have everything a team could want facility has been upgraded from the 49 million dollar facility it was and that facility that Andrew has right now might be total 2 million and I don't think it is so what he's dealing with is a I would say a C plus division one facility and you're expected to beat a teams. And I guarantee you, LSU and Stanford and those guys, they're not out raising scholarship money. And that takes up a lot of time. And he does an outstanding job of that.
0: Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Andrew has done so much for me in my career and he's helped me in more ways than one. And I love being a part of this program and I love doing what I do. And I'm very happy to be here and in a lot of ways, I wouldn't be here without him, so yeah, uh, he's a special man to me, and a special man to many young men who have gone through this program, and so last question I have for you, or last segment, last bit, whatever you want to call it, I first noticed this thing when I was sitting by my own plate as a student manager, recording games, and Working with computers and video and all that stuff. And I noticed that, oh, there's, there's a poster of Augie Garrido underneath uh, the main, uh, what do you call it, the lower level at Cesar Stadium. And that was my first thought because I knew who Augie Garrido was. This was before I knew who Al Ferrer was. And I started asking questions about this poster or this banner. And then I learned that it was you. In the gaucho hat, and I learned who you were. So it it, it became a banner of Al talking to Augie, and you right. guys weren't necessarily talking, but he's a, a guy, you know, obviously well known in college baseball in the baseball realm. The late Augie Garrido, legendary coach, countless national championships at Fullerton, Texas. But you guys had a good relationship, and but it was all serious on the field. And you mentioned him earlier in the pod checking baseballs with Yoko Bitus, but on the field, you know, you guys were as competitive as ever.
1: Well, I grew up in Northern California, as I said, and we were always considered inferior in baseball to Southern California. So all of a sudden I get a job and I'm going to be coaching in Southern California against legends, Rod Dato, who won 13 national titles, uh, Augie Garrido, Dave Snow, Mike Gillespie, on and on and on. And every day you're going to be walking out to the mound. Well, my mother, a Sicilian mother, once looked me in the eyes and said, you're as good as anybody, don't ever back down. And those words were always in my head. So here, the first time I walked, I was at Dato Field, and I'm walking out against Augie Gurito, and they got all these banners. I mean, uh, Rod Dato, and all these banners are hanging, and I just kept saying to myself, don't back down. You're as good as anybody. Well, I tried to teach our team. We're not going to back down from anybody. Screw them. We're coming at them. So we're playing. We now have won a conference title, and Augie was ticked because he had won, I think, nine in a row. And it's like, who are these upstarts? So now we're about to win, I think, our second title. And he's livid. And Eric Johnson comes up in about the second inning. And hits a home run to right center off of a pitcher named Mike Harkey, who threw approximately 95 miles an hour. And Harkey is now the bullpen coach for the Yankees. He made the majors. He's had a nice career. The next time up, Eric gets hit with a fastball in the spine. And he goes down. I sprint out to him. We're all terrified. And he said, Coach, I can't feel my legs. And our trainer and some people take him off in an ambulance to the hospital. Now, the game's still going on. My left field had had played with their left fielder in junior college. And when my left fielder ran out to left field, their guy said, coach called that pitch. And in other words, he was, that pitcher was told to hit Eric. So as the game ended, we go out to shake hands. I don't remember if we beat them that day or they beat us, but we're winning the league. And I don't let go of his hand while we're we're shaking. And I said, and I'll select my letters carefully. I said, if you ever effing hit one of my players again, we're going to kick your ass all the way across this field for as long as it takes. And I wouldn't let go of his hand. And we're going, you can see we're nose to nose. It looks like an umpire and a, and a coach the way it was. And then we walked off the field. Well, my youngest son played seven years of pro ball. He ended up working the front office of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there was a scout there that was the pitching coach that day for Fullerton. And he's telling, Simon's telling him about that moment. And he goes, I'm the one that called the, I told the pitcher to hit him. It wasn't Augie. So it was a, miss, a mistake. So two years ago, Augie Garrido is going to speak with the great LSU coach, Skip Berkman, at an LSU banquet. And s- my son Simon lives in Baton Rouge, and his father-in-law is a huge LSU booster. Well, he saw the picture you see at the stadium online, and he had it made into a photograph and had it framed. So he walked up to Augie at the banquet and said – my son-in-law is al ferrer's son would you be willing to autograph this picture and of course augie laughed <laughs> and he wrote some really nice things on it i mean really nice things and he explained to them yeah it was a big mix-up he thought i did it and it was this other guy and then the my son's father-in-law mailed me the picture autographed and it was very touching to me the next day augie died and i got to tell you i cried And it it was the timing of everything that happened there was so meaningful. And I think it showed a lot of things. UCSB doesn't back down from anybody. I don't care if it's Fortin and they won national titles and it's Augie Garrido, the winningest person ever. Um, It also says that the relationships off the field can be as warm and meaningful as anything. And they were, and uh, it was a moment in time and, uh, that became so much more special uh, when Augie actually autographed it and said what he said. And it's hanging up in our house in the most prominent place. It's it's very meaningful to us. So, uh, great coach. Uh, that was That's part of the beauty of the coaching career is the people I got to – I don't play chess, but I got to play chess against some of the best. And uh, it was wonderful.
0: Well, that photo – that banner, I mean, that's it's going to be at Caesar Wasaka Stadium for, for many years to come, in my opinion, and those are truer words that have never been spoken out, and I, I can't really top anything that you just said, uh, other than I can add that in talking with four of the guys who played last year and were on the College World Series team as freshmen, they were seniors last year, and reminiscing about how they were role players, they, they became leaders, now they are men. And then seeing them out there for the alumni game with playing with the seniors who were on the World Series team and them being on the same field under the lights, it was kind of a culmination of a lot of things. And having other gauchos there like Mike Martin and Andy Graham and uh, there's you know Brian Gump, like all these older gauchos that were there in the 2020 alumni game, I mean, it, it just shows – how tight knit of a family it is in the baseball world and in the college baseball world and how we're all connected in one way or another. And we love competing on the field and we love competing off the field as well. And we love those relationships that we build. And I don't know if that does it justice, but that's kind of the way I feel. And that's kind of how I want to leave this podcast. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and The stories that I heard today, you know, really touched me and I hope that they touch the listeners as well.
1: Well, I really appreciate it. And something you're going to enjoy looking back and, and Andrew will, is seeing players when they become husbands and fathers and all the things Andrew does now with his family and everything else. And I used to do with my boys, they reflect back on that. And Andrew right now is being a role model and you'll be in that same role. It's pretty special.
0: I'm looking forward so I'd like
1: to thank you once again.
0: Thank you, Al. And uh, you got some dinner to go to, so I'm going to let you go. Great. Um, I, I hope to see you around the yard soon. I'm sure we will. And uh, don't be a stranger.
1: Okay, bud. Thanks so much. Thanks, Al. See you.
0: All right. Big thanks to Al Ferrer. I really enjoyed this one. And hopefully that movie happens, and hopefully Jimmy Ion writes his book, because uh, I'd like to watch and read uh, both of those things. But uh, one other thing to note, and this was brought to my attention by the great Bill Mahoney. I'll mention that between 1983 and 1984, the Gauchos had this stretch where they won a lot of games and didn't lose a lot of games. So in the final 32 in 1983, they went 27-5, and five and then in the first 32 in 1984 they went 28 and 4 so over that stretch they went 55 and 9 now in 2019 the gauchos went 45 and 11 and in 2020 as we know the gauchos started 13 and 2 before the season was cut short so if you add those together that's 58 and 13 and talk about lots of winning and lots of success and Coach Ferrer, Coach Checkett's. I mean, what more can be said about those teams in the 80s and the team last year and the team that could have been this year? But we're looking forward to next year a lot. Uh, Can't wait to get back into the swing of baseball things. So that's going to do it for this week. Um, Please keep keeping your social distance. Keep spreading the love, keep being aware. And we'll talk to you next week. Got a good one for you on Sunday. We're going to talk to Michael Young. And we had another great conversation. It went on for over an hour. We just kept talking baseball with Coach Bronsma. So uh, stay tuned for that. That's going to be this Sunday. So uh, hopefully you're having a good week, and we'll talk to you in a few days.